Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Jack Quinn made his Major League debut in 1909 at the age of 25. A late bloomer, Quinn was as durable as any pitcher before or since and was determined to pitch into his 50s. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. Howard Emke, on the other hand, made his debut in 1915 at the age of 21. He had all the potential in the world, but injuries and sickness plagued his career. Both pitchers wound up on the same team, twice, and next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to explore the career of each and talk about the interesting intersections of their careers and how they both overcame obstacle after obstacle over the course of their amazing careers. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 109, Jack Quinn and Howard Emke. These two pitchers had remarkable careers. They played during the same time period and twice they played on the same teams. First with the awful Boston Red Sox of the mid-1920s and later with one of baseball's greatest teams, Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics of the late 1920s and the early 1930s. What these two pitchers did over the course of their careers, proving the naysayers wrong, coming back and overcoming the odds time after time, makes for a great story. And joining me to tell it is Steve Steinberg, co-author of a new book from the University of Nebraska Press called Comeback Pitchers, The Remarkable Careers of Howard Emke and Jack Quinn. Steinberg, for those of you who might remember, also joined me on episode number 28 a few years back as we spoke about the wonderful career of pitcher Urban Shocker. 
What Steinberg and his co-author Lyle Spatz have put together here is just fascinating. And I am very excited to bring this episode to you. And a big thank you to the University of Nebraska Press for sending me a copy of the book. And a belated thank you for also sending a copy of the book Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark, whom I talked about in episode number 106. So, Jack Quinn, like I said, made his debut in 1909. He came up with the New York Highlanders, now known as the New York Yankees. There is great mystery surrounding Quinn's age, and according to Steinberg, he and Spatz believe Quinn pitched in the majors until he was 51. If that's so, that means he didn't make his debut until he was 27. He pitched for 23 years, missed two seasons, and I'll get into all of that with Steve. Meanwhile, Emke was a marvel. He came up with a lot of fanfare, a lot of potential, and possessed Hall of Fame talent. However, he couldn't stay on the field. He dealt with mental lapses throughout his career as well. Still, if not for the decision of an official scorer, Emke's name just might be better known. He would have been the first to have pitched back-to-back no-hitters. And his Game 1 performance in the 1929 World Series is still one of the greatest pitching performances in the history of the Fall Classic. Now before we get into today's episode, just a little house cleaning. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is a great site. It's where you can catch podcasts about all sorts of topics related to the yesteryear of sports. Again, that's the Sports History Network. Of course, I invite you to follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. And look on Facebook for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page. Also, check out my website, sportsfh.com. This is where you can access past episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, ask questions, make comments, suggest forgotten stars of the past for other episodes, learn more about my guests, and find out more about the forgotten stars I talk about. Again, that's sportsfh.com. As always, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating, and thank you for listening and for your continued support. Now let's get to today's episode with my guest, Steve Steinberg. Steve, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been quite some time since we last spoke. I think it was Urban Shocker, but you just came out with a brand new book, and I am so happy you've uh, accepted my invitation to come on back. Well, I'm glad to be back, and Lyle Spatz and I have done another, our third collaboration. Shocker was a solo effort, but Lyle and I have done two other books before 
this new one, Comeback Pitchers. Yeah, it's um, quite uh, quite the undertaking, I think, that you and Lyle uh, undertook. And uh, maybe one time we'll have to have Lyle here with us. Um, sure. You know, Steve, the book is extensive. There is so much to cover. There is no way possible to get all of it. So we're just going to dive in and first just tell us a little bit about who was Jack Quinn. Just give us an overview of Jack Quinn. Yeah, Jack Quinn was a very good pitcher who had a very long career. He came up uh, with uh, the American League uh, team that would become the Yankees uh, that were not a dynasty then in 1909. And his career spanned uh, about 25 years almost in the majors. He was a spitball pitcher and repeatedly was told that he was getting old and uh, washed up and uh, kept on showing uh, that he had uh, plenty of stuff left. So not a superstar per se, but someone who was very, very good, who continued to pitch, and he owned the record as the oldest pitcher to win a major league game for many, many decades. Jamie Moyer broke it uh, here in the last decade and actually gave us a blurb for our book. A, a very good and uh, determined pitcher. Yeah, you know, in fact, I actually wrote it down that when you compare Jack Quinn with someone, I actually wrote down Jamie Moyer. He played for 25 years, and he pitched with the Rockies until he was 49. Um, what about what about Howard Emke? Give us an overview on Howard Emke. Well, Emke, uh, his career came uh, started a few years later than Quinn's, and they became teammates on uh, a very bad Boston Red Sox yeah. team of the early twenties. After the Yankees had stripped them of all their tenant, of all their talent, and then became teammates on the rising powerhouse Connie Max Philadelphia Athletics that won the championship in '29. And like Quinn, Emke was told that he was washed up. A little bit different here was less about age and more because of arm problems right. that he had. And, you know, we really don't know exactly what those arm problems were back then. They didn't have the, uh, you know, the, the, the medical uh, knowledge and development. Maybe he tore a rotator cuff, but he kept on enduring and ended up uh, uh, being a surprise starter in one of the most stunning World Series games ever yeah. in 1929. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say rotator cuff because I thought about that for for a moment. I actually tore my rotator cuff. Wish I could say I was a big league pitcher, and that's what did it, but um, that's not what did it. And the way you described the pain, or he described the pain at one point, I immediately thought about a rotator cuff. Um, mm-hmm. Steve, you know, there's a few other topics that I think we need to touch upon before we get into their careers. And that's really what I'd like to discuss today is their careers and not so much about their lives on the uh, periphery. Um, So we do need to bring up the Federal League. Tell us about the Federal League, if you can, its brief existence and its effect on the game during its existence. Yeah, the Federal League was a competing league to the American and the National. It started out as sort of a Midwestern minor league in 1913, 
and it was very much modeled on the American League, which basically didn't start until the early 20th century. And the American League challenged the National. And in 1901, after being a, a sort of a minor league for a year in 1900, started raiding the big leagues of talent. And the Federal League then became a major league in 1914. Unfortunately, the timing was not there because the Great War, World mm-hmm. War One, was about to break out. The, the owners of the Federal League were actually, uh, by and large, much wealthier men than the owners of teams in the American and the National League. And many people think that the Federal League lost the war because it only succeeded for two years. And we'll talk about it. Both Quinn and Emke went to the Federal League mm-hmm. with different success. But if you really look at it, two of the owners of the eight Federal League teams ended up buying major league teams, uh, the St. Louis Browns and the Chicago Cubs. And most of the others were paid enormous sums of money for the league to discontinue. So it's not quite so simple to say they didn't make it. Uh, I and mean, they didn't uh, survive, but the uh, organized baseball paid an enormous price to make them go away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one other thing we must discuss is the spitball. And I've, I've touched upon this particularly um, with a guest I've had on previously, Joe Neese, when we talked about Burley Grimes. Tell us again... Right about the spitball. It was outlawed when Quinn played, but he was still allowed to use it. So tell us about the grandfather clause regarding the spitball. Yeah, people may not realize the spitball um, was banned after the 1919 season, along with a number of other trick pitches. And the feeling in baseball was that the game was becoming too much of a pitcher's game. You know, history does tend to yeah, repeat Yeah, boy, I wonder about that, huh? <laughs> right. And um, what people don't realize is the spitball was going to be banned totally, and the spitball pitchers, and there were 17 of them, were given the 1920 season to transition. It was, uh, let's be fair, we'll give them one year. But what ended up happening was during the 1920 season, these pitchers, including Jack Quinn, and he was a very active one, started uh, promoting their cause. Quinn was uh, famous for going on record and saying, taking away my pitch that I've developed all my career is like reaching into my pocket and taking money. And uh, there was a little concern in Major League Baseball about a new wild card, and that was the new commissioner, Landis. And a lot of the owners were afraid Landis might step in and do something. So at the World Series of 1920, starred Burley Grimes and the Brooklyn team, the Robins, uh, now known as the Dodgers, mm-hmm. and Cleveland, the Indians, with Stan Kovaleski, another spitball pitcher. So that was another good break that uh, Major League Baseball decided, gosh, we've got these star pitchers, we've got this rumbling of protests, you know, let's ban the pitch, that's fine, but for these handful of guys that have pitched it, we'll let them play their game out, their career out, and uh, Grimes actually pitched a little bit longer, I think one season beyond Quinn's 1933. And so these guys kept on throwing the, mm-hmm. that ball. Mm-hmm. Okay. A uh, little bit of background. Like I said just uh, earlier, uh, you were on previously, as we talked about, really a, a fascinating pitcher, a guy by the name of Urban Shocker, a book you said, uh, you know, that, that, that you did solo. 
tell us what other books that uh, you and uh, Lyle have published. Yeah, Lyle and I have uh, focused on, uh, primarily focused on the Yankees. This book is a little bit of a detour because MP never was a Yankee. Quinn was. He had two stints with them. But we focus on a period primarily of the 1920s and uh, guys that have been overlooked. Uh, our first uh, collaboration was 1921, the Yankees, the Giants, and the Battle for Baseball Supremacy in New York. It was the first year that the Yankees won the pennant, and they had uh, Babe Ruth had just come to town uh, a year before, and the New York Giants made the World Series led by John McGraw. They were really the more popular team. And uh, so that book took a look at the rise of the Yankees. We then did uh, The Colonel and Hug, mm. which was about the partnership between Yankees owner Jacob Rupert, who bought the team in 1915 when they were really terrible, and he hired a few years later Miller Huggins. So that's the Colonel, Colonel Rupert, and Miller Huggins is the Hug mm -hmm. as his manager. And uh, their partnership, their unlikely partnership, uh, really laid the foundation, the dynasty that became the Yankees. Mm -hmm. Well, why did you decide to write a book that encompassed the careers of both of these guys, Jack Quinn and Howard Emke, and not singular books on each. Why did you think you could intertwine their careers like you did, which was, you know, you, you did it really well? Yeah, Law and I, when we collaborated, is a really true collaboration. We edit each other's work repeatedly through many rounds of edits. And uh, these guys had a common denominator. They were both told that they weren't good enough. And so that's a story that even can resonate beyond baseball and, quite frankly, even beyond sport. And they were both, uh, and they were together as teammates and on one, one of the worst teams in baseball and then one of the greatest yeah. teams in baseball. <laughs> and uh, so it was a challenge to weave them in. Uh, but uh, I think the outcome just tells two stories about two guys that said, hey, we're not going to take the advice of so-called experts that were too old or too washed up. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're still going to continue in our profession. Mm -hmm. Where did the name of the book come from? Comeback Pitchers. Why that title? That, that just seemed appropriate because they, they repeatedly in their careers um, did come back from, uh, if there had, at one point we say, if there had been a comeback player of the year award in baseball in that era, they might have each won it multiple times. Mm. And of course, the greatest uh, irony or comeback is that the Red Sox, which were such a bad team in the early 20s, gave up on both these men. <laughs> and Connie Mack, who's been considered one of the great managers in, in baseball history, and our work in this book is more, more confirmed our opinion of that, he thought that these guys could contribute and took them from the worst team, and they became key members of uh, the best team. The 29 through 31 Philadelphia Athletics are not often, they don't get quite the attention that the 26 through 28 Yankees do, but that three-year dynasty following the Yankees' three-year pennant-winning dynasty was pretty amazing with Lefty Grove and... Uh, and uh, George Earnshaw and Mickey Cochran and uh, Jimmy Fox and uh, Quinn and MP were key members of that team. 
Yeah, they definitely had had quite a fearful lineup, a uh, lineup uh, filled with Hall of Famers. So, so the name of the book is called Comeback Pitchers, The Remarkable Careers of Howard Emke and Jack Quinn, and it's from the University of Nebraska Press. Terrific book. Really enjoyed reading it. And before we uh, go any further, why don't you let everybody know where they can get a copy of it? You know, the copy can be gotten anywhere that uh, one wants to get uh, uh, books from. Nebraska Press is offering a, a promotional price on it. They have a website. But, it, you know, it can be uh, uh, gotten anywhere, whether it's a local bookstore um, or, you know, or Amazon, the, all, all the usual places. And like I said, Nebraska Press has done a great job there. They're, they are the home uh, of our other three books. They do such a great uh, job in the entire process. Uh, from, uh, you know, brainstorming with us as we get rolling with it, uh, right through production and layout, and the covers have impact, and uh, we've been very happy to be part of that publishing family. Sure, and some of the photos in there are really terrific. The clarity, just just really good. Well, I have a particular interest in, in photos and have built up a relationship with a number of private collectors in the company, in the country, and my goal always has been that I want, in a book that I'm part of, for the pictures to be as unique and special as the uh, the content of the book and uh, really to be revealing. In this case, we were fortunate enough to connect with uh, members of the Quinn and Emke families that provided some picture, uh, pictures that some may have never been seen, and certainly most of them have not been seen for almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites actually isn't even of... Emke or Quinn. It's of the trainer massaging the arm of Lefty Grove. Right. That, that, that picture really made an impact on me because you realize when you see that picture that that Grove was not that big or muscular a guy no. as opposed to, let's say, a, uh, you know, a, a Jimmy Fox, and yet he was able to get such velocity. His strikeout record was un, just about unmatched at the time. And, uh, of course, he oftentimes talked about the fact that he got his power from delivering with his entire body, not just his arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's a, that, that certainly is a special photo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Steve, one of the things I found interesting is how their careers did intertwine. They played together, like you said, on the Red Sox, uh, 1923 and 1924, part of 1925, and then again with the Philadelphia Athletics from 1926 through 1930, and Quinn actually went on a little bit longer than that. But what I found more interesting was the striking difference between the two physically. Quinn was always in shape. He was a big man, never appeared to get hurt. And obviously his stamina and the fact that he kept himself in such good shape, that plays a huge role in his story. While Emke had all the potential in the world, but was, I guess for lack of a better term, a string bean. He was skinny, but he had a huge arm. Health, though, always appeared to keep him back. So... Talk about what I consider to be the stark differences between the two physically. Yeah, uh, there's no question that Quinn was an ox of a man. He, uh, 
I, I think he did drink in moderation. He'd have an occasional beer. I don't think he smoked. Um, and he kept in, in terrific shape, as you mentioned, even in the off season. He would go hunting. He and his wife had a had a cabin in the wilderness in the, uh, of uh, I think it's northeastern Pennsylvania. And he made made no secret of the fact that he would when he would hunt, he would walk and hike for miles and miles. In the spring, before spring training, he'd go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, uh, where there are still to this day the famous hot baths, the thermal baths, and I visited there as part of my research, our research. And uh, he worked out. He used to pitch in front of a mirror during the off season every day, just go and go through the motion. Hmm. And so he was incredibly fit. He started out as uh, really uh, had a great fastball also, being compared to Amos Rusi, the incomparable speed pitcher of the late 19th century. MK, like you said, a great description to call him like a string bean. He was just as slim, you know, as can be. And and he just uh, had arm problems. Uh, yeah, a lot of times when you dig into the past of a pitcher, you really, you, you know, we don't have diaries. We don't have uh, every possible piece of information. And MK, you know, sometimes he did complain a bit. Uh, you know, constantly having these problems. And we don't know to what extent. I mean, he definitely had some real arm problems, but he also, uh, uh, you know, just uh, oftentimes you would hear him complaining uh, about the fact that he was not 100%. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought it up in the book, or Lyle, whomever, the two of you, brought it up in the book. You know, had his tonsils out one year, was struck by the flu a couple of times. It almost seemed like... He was sickly, and it always affected him, particularly in the beginning of a season. He was never ready to go when the season started. Well, that's very true. And the thing about the tonsils is just an aside here. There was a, a lot of commonly uh, held medical belief then that, uh, well, there was the teeth pulling and the tonsils. Uh, I, I guess I was thinking more of what sometimes a player would have his teeth uh, some teeth pull, likely impacted wisdom teeth, that that was poisoning their system and hurting their arms. So medicine has come a long way since that time, but I sometimes think about the fact that even a modern-day pitcher with all the trainers and all the uh, you know technology now could learn something from the determination that these guys had to simply keep on uh, at what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Well, earlier... You said Jamie Moyer, uh, you know, gave you a comment about Quinn when I read the book. That's who my mind went to as a comparison type uh, uh, for for Quinn was Jamie Moyer or is Jamie Moyer. I, I really had a struggle trying to come up with someone to compare Emke to that might give our listeners somewhat of a picture of the kind of pitcher that Howard Emke was. And the one name that came popping, that kept popping up in my head, a guy who certainly didn't have anywhere near the career of Emke, didn't play anywhere near as long as Emke, but ironically was a Tigers, Mark the Bird Fidrich. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting. I uh, hadn't really thought about Fidrich uh, per se, uh, Emke was a very cerebral guy, and, and, and this may come as a little bit of a surprise to you or the listeners, but in some ways, he too was similar to Jamie Moyer, because 
of course, I, I live in Seattle, so I saw Moyer mm-hmm. pitch many times for the Mariners. But like Moyer, Jamie did not have a lot on the ball. Uh, and you would come to the plate and thinking this guy is going to be easy to hit. Mm-hmm. You know, Moyer would have a fastball. Maybe that was 82 or 83 miles an hour. And then, of course, his off-speed pitch was a lot slower than that. And But he was a very cerebral kind of guy, a really thinking man's mm-hmm. pitcher. And uh, location was important. Not that it wasn't important to Quinn. I think uh, all good pitchers know that location is uh, is very important. But in many ways, he just wanted to out think the, uh, the hitters and tell me a little bit more about your fitters parallel what other things uh just, if i may ask you a question yeah here. just uh you know i was thinking about arm trouble i was thinking uh, about um tall and skinny and right. i was thinking about you know that the potential that Fidrich had, he came up. Uh, the start to Fidrich's career was certainly a little more electrifying. Not a lot, though, but a little bit more electrifying than Emke. And and he had arm trouble. And that's just, you know, I just kept thinking, who am I going to compare this guy to? And for some reason, that's that's what popped into my head. Well, that's, that is interesting. The body types are certainly very similar, too. And, uh, um yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Emke and and his arsenal. Like, you know, he had a decent fastball, like you said, was cerebral. He was a thinker. He came up with the hesitation pitch. But as much of a thinker as he was, one of the things that you wrote about was he was very often accused of losing concentration for a period of time during a game, and that prevented him from realizing his potential. Talk about talk about that and the kind of pitcher, you know, the the arsenal that he did have. Right. Well, that's you know, I touched upon it earlier. We don't know to what extent he was held back. There might have been a, a psychological uh, personality part of him that didn't quite have the determination, even though there's no question that he had to overcome arm problems. But he was a uh, underhand pitcher and a sidearm pitcher and an overhand pitcher. Can you, and, hold, on, uh, hold on one second, because you, you, you're the second guest I've had on recent podcasts that talks about underhand pitching. I, it just, I, I can't picture it. Can you tell me, what what is an underhand pitch? Is that like what Dan Quisenberry used to do? Explain yeah, what yeah, an underhand a, pitch is. Yeah, the you know the arm comes down so low. Of course, Carl Mays, the famous um, pitcher of, of the Yankees, who actually hit and then killed with a hit uh, by pitch. Uh, the only player in Major League Baseball, Ray Chapman, Ray Chapman died. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know the the, the ball as uh, the the pitching arm basically practically grazes the mound that you that the pitcher starts from that uh, angle and uh, you know it is a very odd, a very odd angle and uh, uh, you know we, we, we think that Emke really mixed them up during his career it's not that he evolved and he went from overhand to underhand or to sidearm uh, he, he, he seemed to have mixed it up uh, quite a bit and um, and uh, you know he wasn't enormous, you know, blazing fast, 
And uh, as you said, there were a number of instances where he had a lead and maybe he, he let up a little bit and then uh, and lost the lead and, and the game. But uh, it, it was pretty unorthodox. The ball is, you know, rising uh, as, uh, as you're uh, coming to hit it rather than coming down. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit more about Quinn and his arsenal. You know, he, yeah, he didn't use that. a spitball as much as one would think, and it wasn't a, as you said, a lathered-up spitball either. Tell us a little bit more about the type of pitcher he was. Yeah, the, the, um, there are some contradictory accounts out there, but he definitely had a great fastball when he began. And, uh, and, and, and but Quinn, you know, had a great slow ball, as Urban Shocker did, who we spoke about uh, a few years ago. And uh, Quinn always, you know, mentioned the point. And there's a tendency among athletes that uh, if you get into hot water, you've got a difficult situation, you want to do something even more and throw harder and uh, – which is really something that you don't ordinarily have success with instead of taking a deep breath and, uh, and playing to your strength and uh, trying to outthink the, uh, the hitter. But, uh, you know, the spitball, uh, um, I, I, you could probably fill me in on whether Grimes uh, slobbered a lot on his spitball, but Quinn had a relatively dry, uh, dry spitter. Just a little bit of moisture on the ball could get it to do funny things and uh, and uh, it it could break in unpredictable uh, fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I can't remember the name of the substance, but it was some sort of uh, sap from a tree, from a particular type of tree that Grimes would get a hold of, and that's what he used as a spitball. Right, the bark of that tree. Yeah, the name escapes me here right now. Also, but uh, yeah, he was a master. And the ironic thing is that during the teens. When organized baseball wanted to ban the pitch, a lot of the so-called experts were saying, well, it needs to be banned because it's ruining the arms of these pitchers and it's destroying careers. They would use the example of the incomparable Ed Walsh of the mm. Chicago White Sox. But Walsh really had some other issues rather than the spitter. And as it turned out, so many of these pitchers, including Grimes, Quinn, and Red Faber, who's in the Hall of Fame, just to name a few, were able to go on well into their 40s because mm-hmm. the spitball was actually a very easy pitch on the arm mm-hmm. and, uh, and and not ruining careers. It lengthened them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I said that I want to mostly concentrate on their careers, but I do want to go back to how each was dis- you know discovered and the start of their careers. So Jack Quinn started his major league career in 1909 with New York of the American League going 9-5 and five with a 1.97 ERA. How was he discovered? And tell us a little more about his early days. Well, these two guys had totally different uh, origins. And Quinn's was uh, fascinating because he actually came from Eastern Europe. And there's a whole sub-story here because for many years it was thought that he was uh, – born in the United States, and uh, together with some Quinn family members, there was some amazing uh, genealogical work uh, uh, that I, it wasn't even me that spearheaded, one of the Quinn family members did, and with the help of, uh, of a genealogist in what is now the Slovakian Republic, we were able to determine uh, that Jack Quinn uh, did uh, come from there and came as a very small infant. He never really knew 
uh, mm-hmm. all the details of his upbringing. His mother died shortly after his father came to the United States. The girl that took care of uh, uh, him uh, when he was an infant married uh, his father and subsequently did not uh, want to hear much about uh, wife number one. So there was a lot of mystery there. But he, um, and he, so the name Quinn is a whole uh, another uh, disguise of his because at that time period, there was a lot of discrimination against, you know, Eastern Europeans. And if you wanted to have a baseball name that uh, would open doors, what better name than an Irish name? And so many of the ballplayers of that uh, era were stars, were were Irish in origin. And so he uh, had some real success in the minor leagues in 1908, going undefeated for a Richmond team from Richmond, Virginia. And uh, one of the Yankee scouts, uh, 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 spotted him there, and uh, that led to his being uh, signed by New York. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what about Emke? You know, the start of Jack's career wasn't nearly as spectacular as Howard's. So let's talk about Howard's early days. He was really young, not physically yeah, intimidating from at a, all. Yeah, he came from a middle class, if not an upper middle class family, his siblings, he had brothers that starred at Brown University, and he was uh, going to go to Brown before he joined uh, a Coast League team uh, and had spectacular success in 1914. But here again, as uh, sort of perhaps a hint of what was to come, I mean, he was considered a phenom. Of course, Quinn was also with his undefeated 12-0 and season in Richmond, but Emke had some problems, whether, again, it was his arm beginning to act up or whatever. And that 1914 season, there was a feeling at the end of it that he maybe he wasn't strong enough to really take the strain, you know, of uh, a full major league season. And um, and that held him back uh, from his promotion of the bigs. Yeah, so after the 14 season, you know, there was, you know, what a – they didn't know, you know, could he pitch in the majors or not? And then there was maybe a little bit of a, a battle for his services, and he wound up going to the Federal League in 1915. And then in 1916, um, went to uh, uh, play for the Tigers, and he played for them in 16 and 17. Um, and then and then Jack, he his career was, you know, Obviously, he had started earlier, played his first uh, uh, five seasons in the majors, 1909 through 1912 with the Yankees. Then in 1913, he played for the Boston Braves. And then in 1914, he went to the Federal League and just had this outstanding season. He went 26-14 and and then fell flat the following season for Baltimore in the Federal League, going 9-22. and So... Quinn finishes his Federal League career in 1915. Quinn, I mean, um, um, Emke also finishes in 1915, but Emke gets signed right away to play for Detroit. Jack Quinn had to wait three years before he got back into baseball. Why? Yeah, Quinn, Quinn, uh, Emke actually at first didn't get picked up, and uh, he ended up... uh, going to a, a team in upstate New York where he had a strong and in one of, one of the great minor league seasons in 1916. 
and then the Tigers uh, noticed him. But both of them came out of the Federal League not that well. Emke in 1915 did virtually nothing. He had arm trouble virtually the entire year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He appeared in very few games. Quinn, as you said, had a great 1914 season, not as good in 15, although a lot of that had to do with uh, his supporting cast. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, Quinn, uh, but, you know, keep in mind, of course, at that time, we didn't know exactly how old Quinn was. That's a whole other story because, you know, where was his birth certificate uh, being born in uh, in the Slovakian Republic? Right. We should uh, mention at that time he's listed as 31 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's getting old for a ball player. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, quite frankly, when the Yankees released him in 1912, they were thinking, well, you know, he's 29, about 29. So, you know, a lot of players sort of as they approach 30, that's the end of their career. And Quinn did uh, find a home in the Coast League uh, uh, with a club in Vernon, a small little uh, community uh, south of L.A. And uh, he just, uh, it's just like what Emke did, you know, in upstate New York. He could not be ignored because he just pitched so, so, so well uh, that he got a... Uh, you know, he got another chance in the majors, and of course, uh, yeah, it was MC, just a MC, start. Like it was, Tigers. yeah, for Quinn, it was his career was just starting. It's crazy. Um, how did World War One affect the Federal League and the American and National Leagues? Well, the United States didn't join the war until 1917. Uh, we tried uh, to maintain neutrality. We talk quite a bit about that, Lyle, and I do in our book, The Colonel and Hug. Uh, and and basically, um, it didn't affect things until 1918 because it took most of 1917 for the country to gear up, equipment-wise, training-wise. But in 1918, there was a shortened season because not that baseball had to shut down, but you know there were so many you know uh, young fans that were either worrying about the war or actually going off to fight that it ended up being a truncated season. Emke actually went into the armed forces, into the Navy. Quinn was older, and at least in the initial drafts, was not drafted because he was over the age of 30. And uh, so, um, yeah, there, there was a pause there in 1918 because everything was focusing on the war in Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to Quinn for a moment, because after being, for lack of a better term, blackballed from playing in the American or National Leagues again, he finally did get his chance to come back. But my gosh, the road back wasn't smooth. And when he finally made it back, it wasn't without controversy. In fact, I've, this is the craziest story. Two teams claim they had the right to his services, the Yankees and the White Sox. And in fact, he was playing for the White Sox and beat the Yankees. So he beats the team that says they own his services. And what a mess. Tell us about that. I mean, the Yankees maintain they own his rights, but he's playing for the White Sox. Well, it, it was a, a, a real complicated uh, situation and, and an unfortunate one. And it had implications for baseball because the owner of the White Sox Charles Comiskey was really a power in the American League, and the American League president, Van Johnson, Comiskey's old buddy, awarded Quinn to the Yankees. Basically said, okay, Quinn came up in the end of 1918, 
pitch for the White Sox, like you said, even beat the Yankees, but he really belongs to New York. It was a really strange deal with a war going on. Uh, Major League Baseball said to teams, you know, or said to players, you know, work out your deal with because the Coast League had shut down with players, you know, however you can directly with the players. And it turned out right at that same day that the White Sox signed Quinn directly, uh, the owners of the, uh, the, the Vernon and the Los Angeles team of the Coast League said, let's have a little sort of championship postseason, shortened season series. And so all of a sudden, for another week, technically now Quinn was not out of work. He was still a member of the team. And that's when the uh, Yankees made a deal, not directly with Quinn, but with the owners of the Vernon team. It was very complicated, and Comiskey never forgave his his old friend, Ban Johnson, for taking Quinn away. And a few years later, Johnson needed all the friends he could get, and he didn't have enough, and uh, he was basically out of power as Commissioner Landis took over the running of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about that in pretty good detail in the book. So now back to Emke, when we look at his career – you know, especially at this point of his career as he, you know, he's getting back into the game in the late teens, early 20s, while he's growing as a pitcher, as we said earlier, he always had one bad inning or one bad spurt during his early days, and that cost him. I don't think he ever really developed into the pitcher that so many had predicted, the next Walter Johnson, the next Grover Cleveland Alexander. He was always getting high praise even from umpires, but he never developed like they said he would. Yeah, one of the things that I think makes our story uh, pretty interesting is that some, the supporting cast are some pretty well-known and famous uh, guys. In this case, Quinn and Emke are less well-known than really anyone that Lyle and I have written about before, such as Miller Huggins and Jacob Rupert of the Yankees. And one of the big figures that uh, comes out here is Ty Cobb, yeah, as, uh, a player and then the manager of the uh, Detroit Tigers. And we would suggest that arguably the conflict that Cobb and Emke had was one of the great conflicts between a manager and a player in baseball history. And they actually would have physical fights virtually every time they face each other after Cobb got rid of him. But these but, were two but, very but, different. But, yeah. but Steve, you also said in the beginning, though, they had a decent relationship and then it soured, correct? Yeah, it, of course, at the beginning, Cobb was just a fellow ball player, and then he took over as manager in 1921. And Cobb, like so many intense and great athletes, uh, just cannot countenance the personality of a guy who just seems more uh, more subdued, more reserved, more, uh, you know, just not as intense. And... Uh, and that that certainly didn't uh, didn't help Emke. Ultimately, it didn't help Cobb either because Emke, uh, the trade for the Tigers was uh, a really one a very very bad one that Cobb had pulled off there. Yeah, did he screw up by trading Emke? Well, he he just couldn't get they couldn't get along. So sometimes you know you have to have guys that part, and uh, you know we we see it all the time in any sport. And uh, you know I guess the team that trades the a potential star away, you know, they don't really wish him badly, but boy, if he does really well, then it makes you look bad. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tough situation. But, and ironically, uh, they would become teammates again later. Yeah, much later. Um, so 
back to Jack, like we do in the book, back and forth, back and forth. He, again, fascinates me, especially his age. He also approached the game like a business, and you went into that a little bit before, kept in shape throughout the winter. So he usually got off to a good start, but when the weather heated up, his game sometimes would cool off. Is there anything to that? You know, that was a, a sort of a psychological thing because usually when we look at psychology, we're talking more about Emke. Quinn, uh, for, for a number of years in his career, he thought he couldn't win in the hot weather, which is really ironic because his father, who came over from Europe to work in the anthracite coal mines of Pennsylvania, where the you can only imagine how, I mean, uh, the summers in Pennsylvania are already going to be pretty hot and humid and you're down a mile underground or whatever, um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough life. And uh, Quinn uh, at times just felt that he, he couldn't win in the real hot weather, and, and there was no real explanation. Subsequently, he, um, you know, he, he got better and I think overcame that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why was there so much concern about his age? I mean, either you can pitch or you can't pitch, and... Why was there also so much concern about where he came from and what his actual surname was? Yeah, I think the big concern that the baseball teams had was about his age. And uh, I, I don't know if uh, that bias against uh, the aging athlete has really changed that much. But the, the athletes were famous in this time frame for lying about their age. We didn't have an internet and we didn't have easy ways to check and uh, players would make themselves look younger. There was even a, a joke a sporting news writer said at some point as a player gets to be around 30, he mysteriously gets younger every year that he gets older because, you know, there's just a feeling he's going to lose effectiveness. He's more likely to get injured. And, uh, and, we'll, and, and that was it. The mystery about his, uh, uh, his upbringing and where he came from was one that sports writers latched onto and really didn't get solved until, you know, all of this genealogical work was done. And if it weren't for the fact that the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church in Slovakia kept, as many churches uh, do, meticulous records that we were able to, uh, to nail that true origin down. But it, it sort of gave a certain mystique uh, to him. Uh, to his story, uh, uh, sort of a, a ro- romancing his uh, background. But, yeah, the, the bias against age was, uh, I think, goes, goes back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back to Emke now. Uh, after the 1918, you know, when he finally gets back into baseball, 1919, he goes 17-10 and 10 for the Tigers, follows that with a 15-18 and 18 season, goes 13-14, and 17-17. And, and like you said, he and Cobb just didn't get along, so one of them had to go, and it's not going to be Emke. I mean, it's not going to be Cobb. It's going to be Emke. So they wind up uh, – uh, he winds up with Boston – and in his first year there, he goes 20 and 17 with a 3.78 ERA. You know, um, has a, he has a good season. When yeah, he was yeah. traded to the Red Sox, what happened to his game? Why was it different? What made him better? You know, it's a very good question. First of all, that Red Sox team was enormously bad. I'm trying to remember how many 
Yeah, they not only it, right. Like you, exactly. They were yeah. an awful team, an awful team, but, and he yeah, won 20 just, games for them. Yeah, it was just a breath of fresh air. He just felt, you know, if you have a boss that you don't like and you're afraid that he doesn't like you, every day you go to work perhaps, you just uh, – feeling a little tight you can't relax and i think just having the freedom uh that he had uh uh first you know with uh, hugh duffy and or and then actually um yeah as long as it wasn't Cobb, you know frank chance uh mm-hmm. who was a very intense guy the star of the great cubs teams of the early century became the manager uh, uh his manager for a while there in boston but he just uh, let emke be empty and let him be a pitcher i mean Cobb would Cobb was famous. There were incidents, we'll even talk in detail about at least one of them, where a pitcher would lose control and Cobb would call time and he'd run in from the outfield and he'd even say, you know, how come you can't get over the plate? And and he'd throw the ball over the plate or call first baseman Harry Howman over Harry, throw the ball over the plate. And really, um, it's pretty tough if that's your boss. And uh, mm-hmm. so he just, he just felt really more appreciated uh, and, and, and relaxed. Well, he had a great season. Like we said, he won 20 games. The Red Sox that year won 61. They were 61 and 91, so he won a third of their games. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, talk about his hesitation pitch. What was it? Explain it to us. Again, I, 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 I try to compare things, and the closest thing that I can come up with to a hesitation pitch in a full windup would be Clayton Kershaw. I mean, his... The, the the way he stops his leg, um, but I don't think that that is indicative of what a hesitation pitch it was. Yeah, you know, we we don't have any film. There may be somewhere some will be uncovered, and occasionally you do get some film from the 1920s that does surface and then goes on YouTube. But it was a pitch um, that he didn't use with a runner on first because there was a question of a ball. But it, I, I sometimes wondered, as Lyle and I worked on this book why more pitchers don't try that. And that is uh, the whole thing about hitting a baseball or a big part of it is, uh, is, is timing. Part of it is seeing the pitch, but part of it is timing. And he would just go into his windup. And as it was described, you know, right when the, the batter is ready to pull the bat back to swing, uh, you know, at the top there, he might hesitate for a bit and just mess up the timing of the pitcher. He also did a very good job of, uh, of sort of hiding the ball and certainly with the away, the away uniforms, which were gray, and sometimes the ball wasn't you know bright white. Although after they banned a lot of the trick pitches, they they did keep fresher, whiter balls, which helped hitters a lot. So uh, it, it just was almost like a stutter step in his in his delivery that just messed up the hitters. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you know, both Quinn and Emke uh, pitched at the end of the dead ball era. And again, I'm jumping around a lot here. I'm moving for we could go so much detail in your book. And if we go into everything, A, this will be a three-hour podcast, which wouldn't bother me. But um, there'd be no reason for anybody to buy the book. So we're just hitting on some of the highlights and right. they they both pitched at the end of the dead ball era and the advent of the lively ball era. Was there a dramatic difference in their games between the two eras? Well, yeah, that's a whole discussion on its own. There was a, there was a very dramatic difference. And, uh, and, of course, the spitball pitchers that were grandfathered had 
an increasingly uh, you know, nice advantage and and, uh, and and it's reflected in their numbers because as there were fewer and fewer spitball pitchers, the hitters were less and less familiar with it and saw it less, uh, you know, less and less. And it is fascinating as these pitchers uh, had to deal with, uh, deal without uh, a lot of these trick pitches and, uh, you know, the other thing that I, I touched on is the ball was replaced during the game much more often. And uh, in the dead ball era, you know, there might have been just two or three balls used uh, during the, the during the game. And you can imagine how discolored it looked. Mm-hmm. And if, uh, if pitchers were spitting on it and rubbing all kind of liniment or whatever on it and, and then it's dirty. So it, it was tougher to be a pitcher uh, in, in the 1920s. And the numbers dramatically reflect that. Mm-hmm. Well, another name that comes to mind when reading your book, Comeback Pitchers, is that of Johnny Vandermeer. Um, Emke's first season with Boston, 1923. You know, again, this guy has great potential. And perhaps he finally showed and or lived up to that potential when he pitched a no-hitter against Connie Mack's Philadelphia Athletics, a team, by the way, whom he had great success against throughout his career. And then he follows up that no-hitter with a very controversial one-hitter against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Talk about those two games. Well, we often hear in sports that a a referee or an umpire should make a call, like in basketball now that we may be following, you know, a foul in the in the first quarter should be a foul in the fourth quarter. And the leadoff hitter, uh, you know, uh, that if uh, Emke's game hit a ball that was ruled a hit that went to the third baseman, perhaps could have been ruled an error. Emke then went on to mow uh, uh, the Yankees uh, down without giving up a hit. If it had been the ninth inning, you know, would that uh, would the uh, it was the in this case the official scorer who turned out to be one of the most famous baseball writers in the longest career, Fred Lieb, and Lieb uh, just stood his ground. He said it was a uh, I ruled it an error, uh, the first batter of the game, and I'm not going to change it. Had he changed it, or had he initially said it was an error, Emke's name would be known by virtually every baseball fan out there as pitching back-to-back no-hitters long before Johnny Vandermeer uh, did it uh, um, many years later. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the way you covered it and the way you discuss it, it's, it's a great story, and it's a shame because I think the score, you know, sort of admits later on, you know, he had reservations later on about whether or not it really was a hit or an error. Yeah, Fred Lee did have reservations, but here's one of the great ironies. His first no-hitter that you touch on against the A's was only a no-hitter because a runner, I think it was the opposing pitcher, hit a double and forgot to touch first base. He was so excited (laughs) when he hit his double off the wall. So Emke got that first game, not a gift from an umpire or a scorer, but uh, how often do you see a no-hitter broken up and then it turns out that the runner forgot to, you know, ran over first base and never stepped on it. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if it evened out. 
Well, you know, let, let's let's go now, and, and we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Athletics. You know, and that, that's a team, that's a franchise that a lot of people don't realize how good the Athletics have been over the years. Um, you know, they won three out of four years in the early, you know, 19, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, no, somewhere's in there. And then they fell on hard times. You know, Connie Mack always liked Emke and Quinn. And finally, in trying to rebuild his team, he got both of them. And there was criticism as Quinn at that time was reportedly 41 and Emke was 32. And neither of them were pitching extraordinarily well, let's say. Yet Mac wanted them. And the following four years, I think, were probably the best years of each man's career. And I say Quinn was reportedly 41 because we've touched upon it. No one ever really knew his age, maybe even Quinn himself. Um, Talk about the Philadelphia Athletics. Probably um, these were the best, the most competitive years of Quinn's and and Emke's careers as far as being in pennant races every year. And that's where they actually played their, uh, you know, this was the second go-round for them to be on the same team. Um, And it was quite a time. Yeah, it was. You know, Connie Mack had built up, as you said, the teams uh, of the early 20th century, 1905, 1910, 11, 13, 14. And he did it by uh, bringing a lot of, uh, he he had a lot of these sort of informal scouts out there. And uh, and he thought he could rebuild that quickly again. And he couldn't because now every team was looking for uh, good players. And he had the worst team in baseball for a number of years uh, from the mid to late teens into the early 20s. And he started climbing again only by actually laying out big dollars. He paid. I think it was $100 more to get Lefty Grove than the Yankees paid Boston to get uh, Babe Ruth. He paid a lot of money to get uh, Mickey Cochran, I believe, from Portland. And uh, the the uh, Jimmy Fox thing was, I think, a little bit more uh, of, of luck or, or, or foresight. But he was building the team up, and he just he, he, he thought that he saw something in Quinn and Emke. He also saw that he had a very young team. And he wanted veteran leadership, and uh, unfortunately, he had to wait a few years, and Quinn and Emke did, because right around that time that they joined the A's, the Yankees, you know, were uh, having their second yeah. rebirth of uh, rebirth of the 1920s, and, uh, and certainly the tw- cap by 27, uh, they were not going to be denied. But uh, Quinn and Emke had, and Emke's perhaps his, Quinn's best season might have been 28 when the A's felt just short of the pennant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that 28 season, you know, Quinn Quinn did have a heck of a year. He was, uh, I got that right here, 18 and 7. Um, but the following year, 29, I think, is probably the most gratifying year for each man. Sure, Quinn made a World Series earlier with the Yankees. I think it was 1921. Um, but in 29, after, you know, this great 1928 for Quinn, he goes 11-9. and Emke was only 7-2 and two in 
1929 and was nearly let go by Connie Mack earlier in the season, but he made a deal with Connie Mack. Tell us about the deal and the fact that Mack almost reneged on the deal. Yeah, you know, there have been so many stories about the background to quote-unquote the deal. Um, and Connie Mack was a master psychologist, and and that certainly made him different from other managers out there. He never criticized a player in public. And uh, he, he told Emke that, you know, Emke just wasn't cutting it. Well, part of it may have been, you know, Emke's arm. Part of it might have been, you know, mental and MP told him that I've got one one great game left in this arm, and uh, MP had to show it to him during the end of the regular season. And uh, Mac made what at the time would be thought of as an absurd decision that he was going to start MP, this guy that only pitched nine games during the season in Game One of the World Series, and and uh, no, nobody you know thought that was possible. And as it was unfolding. I think even his own players thought Connie Mack had gone uh, crazy. Al Simmons uh, was one who famously was just in shock when it turned out that Emke was going to start that game. And um, Connie Mack later on called that day his greatest day in baseball. There's a little book that came out in the 1940s, My Greatest Day in Baseball, and it was that day that uh, uh, he started Howard Emke in game one against the powerful Chicago Cubs. Well, you know, he lets him pitch. For some, like you said, it was a surprise. For others, they had a hunch because one of the things that Emke did, and and this wasn't the first time that Emke had been sent home and told to rest up and get yourself healthy and figure out, you know, how to pitch again. And he, he went... And he watched the Cubs play uh, against the Phillies. I think it was at the Baker Bowl. Um, He saw them play against the Phillies, and he was taking notes. And people were like, why is Howard Emke here taking notes? So some people might have had a hunch that something was going on. And that game one of the World Series, Howard Emke was simply phenomenal. He struck out a record 13 batters that day, and that was a record, I believe, in the World Series that lasted for a couple of decades. But not only did he strike out 13 ballplayers, 12 were swinging. So he had his stuff that day. And, you know, as you had brought up in the book, his arm was basically numb. And based on Emke's description of his arm, that probably should have been the last game of his career. He should have walked out a champion that day and walked out with his head held high. So, again, tell us a little more about that game he pitched at that time, one of the greatest pitching performances in World Series history. Right. I mean, Connie Mack uh, was... uh brilliant for two reasons. Number one, he knew how to motivate uh, Emke because he said, hey, I'm going to send you down to the minors, and Emke said, give me a chance. But number two, and more importantly, is the fact that they were playing the Chicago Cubs in Wrigley Field, and the Cubs were stacked with fastball hitters. Hack Wilson, 
uh, one of the most powerful hitters of all mm-hmm. time, Roger Hornsby, even Charlie Grimm. I mean, these guys were just, you know, they were fastball pitchers, and they knew they were going to see some real heat from uh, from Philadelphia. And instead, this junk ball pitcher, um, uh, the, the the coach of the MP, the, the coach of the uh, Chicago Cubs. Joe McCarthy, who later on went to the Yankees, and I'm not going to mention the word here, but we actually have it in the book. He used the four-letter word to describe um, uh, <laughs> MP's pitching style, and it, it means sort of junk, uh, you know, or garbage, or uh, something right. worse than that. We'll leave it at that. And you know, they they, they were just anxiously waiting fastballs because Lefty Grove and George Earnshaw were two of the fastest pitchers in the game, and here comes this guy. And Epke had a little bit of a rough start because the game actually, the beginning of the game got held up about, I think it was 15 or 20 minutes because of the traffic jam. And Commissioner Landis said, let's wait for everybody to get here. Uh, otherwise, Epke felt, you know, he would have started even smoother. And uh, he just had them baffling. I mean, I wish we could have film of that game because uh, you really were seeing some of the great hitters of the game. I think mm-hmm. Hornsby might have struck out three times of a mm-hmm. positive in that game and they just uh, again maybe it's like uh jamie moyer again you know you you go back to the dugout saying how the heck did i not hit that guy i mean what's going on here and uh 13 strikeouts broke uh i think it was ed walsh's record with the uh 06 uh white Sox. Mm-hmm. and and again he should have he should have walked away a champion but once again, he convinced Connie Mack to let him come back in 1930 and not cut him loose. But how did he talk him into letting him come back? And then finally it was over. Yeah, well, the other thing he also uh, taught him, he also talked Connie Mack into letting him start uh, what turned out to be the final game of the World Series, and he was rocked. Mm-hmm. So Mack wasn't perfect. And uh, luckily, I guess you could say that uh, history sort of has conveniently and graciously forgotten about those uh, that almost glorious ending that uh, and when most people that even know of the MP game think well that was his last game that was his last win but uh, you know he, it, it wasn't his last game and Quinn pitched in that World Series also and ironically Quinn pitched and that MP game is considered one of the most famous games of all time in the World Series and MP, Quinn actually pitched in one of the most famous games in World Series history, but he's not remembered as uh, for what he did. And it was the game in which he left uh, where his team was way behind, and the A's were behind the Cubs late, eight to nothing, and rallied to win ten to eight, the greatest comeback in World Series history. Basically, we mentioned the fact that this actually led to uh, William Wrigley, the chewing gum magnate. Uh, losing confidence in manager Joe McCarthy and the Yankees benefiting mm-hmm. for a decade mm-hmm. from that. So two of the most famous games of uh, World Series history were both in 29. Quinn's name is all over one of them, but forgotten. Mm-hmm. And Yankees is over the other one. Mm-hmm. Well, the 29 season, obviously for both of them, had such a great end to it. 1930, Emke was finally let go. Quinn did play for the A's or the Athletics in 29 and 30, got two World Series uh, championships there. And he kept on going, Quinn did, and played into the 1933 season when he was 49. Just amazing. 
taught, and he always said he wanted to pitch until he was 50. And who knows? He actually might have if we could ever figure out what his real age was. Talk about the end yeah, of his I, career. I, 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 yeah, I think we did pretty much nail down that uh, he did make it to 50. He was with the Cincinnati Reds, mm -hmm. barely hanging on there because we were able to nail down his uh, his uh, uh, date of birth from his uh, baptism certificate in the uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church over in a little village in Slovakia. And, uh, yeah, he became a very, very dependable uh, relief pitcher, led the National League in saves. I mean, saves wasn't a statistic then. But uh, retroactively, you know, it's been computed mm -hmm. and it shows up in all the records. And uh, you know, he, he continues to be very, very good. And he was in the he went to the National League uh, with the Brooklyn team. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, again, so much was covered in your book. I really enjoyed it. Comeback pictures, the remarkable careers of Howard Emke and Jack Quinn from the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, so much, including what, how umpires actually wrote articles back then, and they commented on players. You'd never see that today. Harry Frazzi right. and his terrible mismanagement of the Red Sox. Much more about Cobb and Emke, the mystery around Quinn, his age, his real surname. Just an incredible amount of information. Is there anything else that you want to say on today's podcast that we haven't covered that you think is too important before we wrap things up? Well, I would just add that one of the uh, fascinating parts of the book is the 1928 season. The great 27 Yankees came uh, out in 28. With a roaring start, they had an enormous lead by uh, midseason, and the A's, uh, with Quinn and Emke's help, and that was when Quinn won 18 games, came storming back and actually took over first place and uh, set the stage for a game that uh, I discussed in my Urban Shocker book because it was the very day that the, the, the great Yankee pitcher Urban Shocker died mm -hmm. in a Denver hospital, and on that day late in the season, the Yankees in second place swept the A's in a double header at Yankee Stadium for an enormous crowd and went on to just hang on for the pennant and deny Connie Mack uh, and made him wait until 29. But certainly Babe Ruth is uh, uh, surfaces repeatedly in the book, mm -hmm. both as a teammate of Quinn in 21 and 20 and uh, as an opponent uh, in the later years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, he had a lot of good things to say about uh, Emke and Quinn, but I was actually surprised uh, how much he, good he had to say about Emke. Hey, Steve, what are you working on next? You, you have any well, ideas? Well, well, we do, but we're just waiting a bit to uh, talk about it. Lyle and I are doing another collaboration together, and uh, we're, we're returning to New York with this story, and we're going back even a little bit more in time, and we don't uh, churn out books that quickly, so it's going to be a while. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully there will be another collaboration, number four, and uh, it it uh, it should be exciting. Well, Steve, I want to thank you again so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Like I said, I could ask you so many more questions, but I think uh, we covered it. Uh, uh, you know, a good amount, touch, uh, touch the surface on a good amount. And I hope uh, people out there buy the book because it is detailed, goes into a lot. 
tells you a lot about two guys, neither are Hall of Famers, but they certainly had great and very interesting careers. Well, these are guys that just fit the name of your show, uh, you know, perfectly because uh, they have amazing stories and they've been really forgotten. And Delal and I love to bring them back to life, so to speak, and give them a little bit of the spotlight that they so uh, so richly deserve. You got it, Steve. Anytime. Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Jack Quinn put together one heck of a career. He won 247 games and saved 56. His best year might have been 1914 when, for the Baltimore Terrapins of the Federal League, he was 26-14 and 14 with a 2.60 ERA in 342 and two-thirds innings. Always in shape, Quinn was a marvel pitching for 23 years. Emke pitched 15 years, missing the 1918 season. His overall record was 166 wins and 166 losses with 15 saves. If not for the decision of the official scorer, he might be better known as the first man to pitch back-to-back no-hitters. And what he did in Game 1 of the 1929 World Series is still one of the greatest performances in baseball history. Once again, I'd like to thank the University of Nebraska Press for sending a copy of the new book, Comeback Pitchers, The Remarkable Careers of Howard Emke and Jack Quinn. By today's guest, Steve Steinberg and his co-author, Lyle Spatz. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, a new special series will start. Periodically, I will be bringing on a guest to talk about a sports palace no longer with us. First up, Milwaukee County Stadium. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.